You know, in public finance, we talk a lot about revenue diversification, right? Making sure you're not too reliant on one source of revenues. But there's something to be said also for industry diversification, right? We can't be entirely reliant on one industry that drives the city because that could change at any time. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and joined as always by my co-host, native Californian, current Marylander, (laughs) chicken farmer, fiscal policy wonk, and bona fide credible expert on all things state and local public finance, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Yes, I love that you're you're giving a shout out to my native Californian roots, uh, considering our, our guest, uh, who's going to join us a little later on this episode. Um, I wanted to share with you though, that we have a bit of a chicken egg mystery going on. It's not the classic question of which came first. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, we the last few days we have not I've not had any eggs to to collect. And uh, so there's one of three possibilities. One, they have just decided to start laying them somewhere else. Um, so my son and I did like a little Easter egg hunt kind of thing where we walked all around the chicken pen looking. We couldn't find them. So that possibility is probably out. Another possibility is that they have joined the actors and writers in striking and have decided not to lay eggs in protest. And this is an actual thing that happens, but in protest of the change uh, of the new birds that that I brought into the pen in their little contained area, um, chickens don't like change, so they can withhold eggs in protest. It's mm. happened before. Um, mm. The other possibility is that we do have rat snakes around here, and one of them may be sliding its way into there and getting at the eggs before I can collect them. So um, I'll update you next time because I've now removed the ramp into the chicken mm. uh, coop. So now no snakes can get up there. So if I get eggs tomorrow, then then that was the thing. So I'll, I'll keep you posted. That will, that will have been a, a successful application of the scientific method to this uh, particular problem. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was sounds like three almost equally undesirable outcomes or undesirable uh, causes. <laughs> yes, yes. I really hope it's the snake and not the egg strike. <laughs> I don't want to have to go to the store and buy eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, we are, um, as you mentioned, uh, we're very fortunate to have joining us uh, in a little bit, Jennifer Becker, who is the Director of Financial Services for the City of Burbank, California, uh, which is getting a lot of attention these days as the, in some ways, epicenter of the writer's strike and now the writer's and actor's strike. And so we're lucky to have her on to tell us about what that's meant for Burbank's fiscal situation and have kind of a broader conversation about the fiscal dynamics at work in Southern California and in uh, local governments writ large in a post-COVID world. One of the things that becomes very clear when you start to look at a community like Burbank, Liz, is that it is in some ways an industry town, in in Burbank's case, entertainment and and media, but we think both in our respective work have come across local governments that are industry towns in one way, shape, or form. And it always creates a very different sort of fiscal dynamic, uh, in many ways cutting against the traditional conventional wisdom that says that revenue diversification is a good thing, right? Having lots of different revenue sources that are driven by lots of different kinds of economic activity is a good thing. And that's hard to do when a lot of your industrial base, property tax base, sales tax base is concentrated in a handful of industries. As you've studied this over the years, 
you know, what jumps out to you when you think about some of the unique challenges related to local government finance in industry towns? Yeah, it is sort of a the result, I guess, of putting all your eggs in one basket um, to continue on with this nice. metaphor here. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's great when when things are, are producing, but uh, when production stops, it it's an utter nightmare and you, you don't really have any backups. I, I remember covering D.C., uh, the impact, economic impact of federal shutdown. This is a period, a couple of them um, in D.C., I wasn't around in the 90s for that shutdown, but I did a lot of, you know, of talking with people about what that impact was like. And it's it's huge. I mean, the federal government, you know, D.C. as as a city sort of lives and dies by it in terms of it is the thing that a lot of other things rotate around. And so when that shuts down, everything kind of stops. And as we'll hear, that's that's the same with Burbank. It's similar with oil oil towns. I mean. There's lots of post, not postmortems, but lots of analyses on West Texas in the 1980s and what that did to, to industry towns there. On the on the oil front, though, I thought that was interesting. In that, if you take Alaska for example, I mean, Alaska is an entire state that relies on its state revenues for the oil industry, but it has been able, for the most part, because of how it it manages its excess reserves and how little it spends as a state, is that when times are great, it's it's fine. Um, when uh, the state's facing budget deficits, usually it's got enough in reserves. It, it's as a state that has something like a year's worth of reserves, <laughs> a year's worth of spending in reserves or something like that, precisely because of this volatility. So if you're going to rely on one industry, then that, that might be the way to do it. Not Not every government really has that kind of luxury, though. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of lot of local finance directors who would love to be able to to diversify <laughs> both their economic base and the revenues that they that they extract from that economic base, but we don't always have the the luxury of doing that. It's yeah, it, well, so I, I think two points in reaction to that. One, we might very well be talking about a federal government shutdown again. That's <laughs> true. Everything we're certainly hearing a lot of those those rumbles. But the other part of it too, and I'm glad we're talking about this. We've been doing some research um, at the Center for Municipal Finance at uh, the Harris School recently on exactly this question of diversification. And one of the things that you find when you really start to dig into some of the trends over time in local government revenues is that there's sort of two different ways to think about diversification. There's diversification with respect to just the number of revenue sources that you depend on. Then there's also diversification in the way that we think about it in in sort of corporate finance or portfolio management, which would be the idea that it, it's just as helpful, if not in some ways more helpful to have revenue sources that don't move together, right? To have mm-hmm. what we would call uncorrelated assets in the portfolio management sense of the word. And certainly one of the things that we that we see is that in industry towns, you do get a lot more of those, all your revenue sources moving in the same direction at the same time. Uh, and that, so in some sense, it doesn't matter if you're diversified, if, if all if you have lots of different revenues, but they're all going in this, you know, up or down, depending on what's happening in a, in a specific industry, then you're not getting a lot of the benefit of diversification. Whereas having a revenue portfolio that yeah, some sources that are increasing while others are maybe declining, uh, depending on what's happening in the in the industries that are driving those revenue sources, you get a very different behavior, arguably a more steady, less volatile, and maybe even more desirable revenue portfolio as a result of that. And so as much as we've emphasized in economic development these days, having agglomerative economies, right? Mm-hmm. Having a lot of those agglomeration effects. One thing that we know less about is, well, if you achieve that, then what does it mean for for local revenues? And it may be a little more nuanced, I think, than the story that we're often hearing. And when you look to communities like Burbank, you start to see you know, what happens when you have that kind of established pattern of economic activity behaving over time. And you, you find yourself in situations exactly like the one that they're in now. 
uh, which you know, may or may not be the kind of place that you'd want to land. We are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Jennifer Becker, who is the Director of Financial Services for the city of Burbank, California. Jennifer, welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We have you on here mostly to talk about kind of the impact of the writer's strike, which had just started when you and I first met back at the GFOA conference in May, and it is obviously still going, much to, I think, a lot of people's chagrin. Before we get into all that, though, I would love for you to kind of just set the stage for us, as it were, and kind of give us the little background about your career, how long you've been with the city of Burbank, and uh, kind of some of that economic statistical information about Burbank that might be helpful for our listeners. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm kind of an anomaly in the world of public finance is I've spent my entire career here with Burbank, um, approaching 23 years in January. I started as an entry-level budget analyst straight out of grad school. Uh, One of my professors at USC was the management services here, uh, director here in Burbank. And uh, he asked for a resume of mine after a a group project, and I've been working here ever since. Now, while I'm an anomaly in public finance, uh, that's actually pretty typical uh, in Burbank. About a third of my staff here in the financial services department has actually been here longer than I have, uh, which is really saying something about uh, loyalty to the city. And it says a lot about what a great place this is to work. Our, Our city manager, assistant city manager, and several of our executives are also uh, 20, 30 plus years with the city. We have a lot of folks who work here who were born and raised in Burbank, went to Burbank schools and stayed here to work for the city. So it's kind of an interesting place in terms of local government. We don't see nearly as much uh, turnover as we did as other cities uh, might see. But of course, we're seeing more in that uh, as generations change. Uh, but city is just northeast of uh, Los Angeles, of downtown Los Angeles. We have just over 100,000 population. I think the last census was 104,000. But of course, we're part of that 10 million person greater Los Angeles metropolis, right? Uh, Which, you know, we're spread pretty far and wide in Los Angeles. But for whatever reason, Burbank feels like a small town. Uh, People spend their entire lives here. You hear it referred to as Mayberry. Uh, It sort of has a small town feel, but yet you have this access to everything Los Angeles has to offer, uh, both good and bad. Our uh, total budget is about $850 million. We're a full-service city. Out of that budget, our general fund is around $230 million. But we have uh, police and fire department, electric, water, sewer, utilities, and refuse collection. So we really are full-service. And people love the fact that uh, they get their city services from Burbank and feel like it's just a great place to live and work. Sounds great. And for those of us who are old enough to remember the old uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, of course, the the running joke was always uh, live from downtown Burbank, which when you describe it as a small town, I guess I kind of get the joke now, uh, many years after. (laughs) Beautiful downtown Burbank, I believe he called it. And that's really become part of sort of our ethos here in town, right? All the glitz and glamour was in Hollywood, but all the actual production most of that happens here in Burbank, right? We have Warner Brothers uh, headquarters, Disney's corporate headquarters, uh, Netflix, Nickelodeon, I mean, more uh, large entertainment companies than you can count, and about a thousand auxiliary businesses around the city that have to do with entertainment. So it's like very much a part of our identity here in Burbank. 
So yeah, let's get into that industry town uh, perspective. Um, can you talk talk about what that means? I guess from 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 where you sit in the in the fiscal services office. I mean, like I said, it's really part of our identity here in Burbank. Uh, you know, I sit down in front of my TV, and not a week goes by that I don't see a scene from the city somewhere on a TV show or a movie. Uh, I think people take a lot of pride in that. And, and like I said, we have you know over a thousand businesses directly related to entertainment. And that doesn't include all the auxiliary or support businesses like restaurants, dry cleaners, uh, anything you can imagine that really depend on the industry to function. Our uh, city population doubles uh, to over 200,000 during the workday because of the amount of people coming into Burbank to work in the industry. And then, of course, many, many of our residents also work in the industry as well. So, uh, you know, when there's an event, uh, it affects everybody from our, you know, business partners to our residents. So, Jennifer, it's certainly an interesting mix of industry that that you have there in Burbank. It's kind of a a two-part question. How is that it, generally speaking, make you different from other local governments, say in the LA Basin, revenue expenditures, how's your fiscal makeup a little bit different? And then what have been the specific impacts that you're you know, now starting to see as the, the writer strike has been going on for a while? Absolutely. Well, if you look at our revenue chart, we're not all that different from some of the other cities surrounding us, right? Well, Burbank's very fortunate in that we have a diverse revenue stream. Sales tax and property tax are probably our two biggest, but we have a variety of revenues coming in, from service charges, uh, hotel occupancy tax, uh, parking tax, utility users tax, all the typical things you see in a city. What we don't have actually is a, um, a traditional business tax, like uh, an in- income-based or uh, revenue-based business tax, which is probably why our studios are located here to begin with. Uh, we're very business friendly. We have a very uh, low tax rate and not a gross receipts tax. So uh, in one way, that's good because when they experience those losses, it's not going to hit us to the extent that we would if we were relying on those business taxes. But of course, there's so many indirect impacts from the entertainment industry around town. Uh, Everything from sales tax uh, for all the small businesses that support our entertainment industry. Uh, We receive a lot of sales tax from business to business transactions. Uh, For example, if a studio would buy a large piece of equipment like a camera or, you know, a variety of equipment that they use, you know, they pay a use tax on that and the city gets its share. So when that activity slows down, obviously uh, we see those revenues slow down. Film permit revenue is probably something unique uh, to the city of Burbank, right? When you want to use a location or shut down a street or or an area of town, you get film permit. Um, They hire our locals, uh, safety officers, police and fire. If there is an open flame, for example, on a movie shoot, or uh, if they need security at a shoot that's, you know, somewhere in town, they pay our officers to do that. So there are some unique revenues that we have that you wouldn't see in a lot of other places. It could indirectly, you know, depending on how long the strike would last, it could indirectly impact the housing market. You know, without a steady income, you're not able to buy a home. And what that does could potentially increase the rents in town because you don't see a lot of people buying. So there's all sorts of direct and indirect impacts uh, of the entertainment industry. All of those small businesses that rely on the industry just to bring that population in and support them is really like our biggest concern because once they go away, they don't always come back. You don't know how long some of these small businesses could last, so it's in everybody's best interest to kind of end this quickly. 
Yeah, for sure. It sort of reminds me of, I mean, not that DC, Washington, DC has has, the, has those same odd revenue streams, but certainly um, I remember covering the, the economic impact on Washington, DC when the federal government shut down for a longer period of time. Um, I'm blanking on which year. It wasn't the recent one that was just for a little bit. But yeah, it's... Uh, you can just walk around on the streets and see that kind of kind of impact. Well, there are definitely some similarities, right? When a portion of your population isn't getting paid, um, they're not going out and shopping. They're not eating at your local restaurants, right? They're trying to conserve as best they can and just hope to make it through. And of course, you know, from the city's perspective, there's a, a fine line between supporting and wanting a good partnership for our uh, largest employers here with our largest employers here in the city, and then also uh, supporting the plight of our residents, many of whose livelihoods are tied to the industry. The labor side of the industry has sort of doubled down now with the actors uh, joining the strike. Has there been any you know, noticeable kind of additional or, or separate impacts from, from the strike expanding that way? there's definitely an impact. And with a writer's strike, it's safe to assume that you have some material that's already written. So production is still going on for items that they already have, right? For things that are finished. When the actors stop working, production comes to a screeching halt, right? There's nothing, there's no activity taking place. And now more of the workers are affected, right? Whether it's set designers, uh, lighting folks, sound crew, everybody who's involved with a production now they can't work, right? So this becomes more immediate. Uh, the economic losses to the studios also becomes more immediate. So in a way, maybe there's a positive because with the actors joining the writers, there might be more motivation to resolve both of those contracts more quickly because the uh, financial impact to the industry is much more immediate. I've read articles that estimate anywhere from three or three or to four billion dollar loss in productivity overall for the industry as a whole. And that's based on the last time that the actors and writers both had a strike at the same time, which I think was 2007. And their loss there was about 2.1 billion. And that was roughly a hundred day strike. And, you know, as we come up to those numbers, we'll probably see those same impacts. Of course, that spread everywhere in the industry, but there's no question that Burbank's going to take their fair share of that. So, I mean, you were around uh, with the city of Burbank at that time. I mean, that was in 2007 and then followed by the Great Recession. I mean, what was that that like for the city in terms of fiscal impact? Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, city revenues are always, they're always sort of on that delay when it comes to uh, the impact of a recession, right? Because you think about property taxes, we're a year behind in assessment from the time of assessment to the time we receive our, our revenues. Uh, but they definitely, you know, starting with sales tax and then, of course, property tax really fell off a cliff during 2008. It was a very challenging time for the city. Uh, we were cutting budgets in the area of 10 to 20 percent, right, at a time when people needed those services the most. So that that time period was really probably the most challenging economic time I've had with the city. A couple of years ago, I would have said COVID, but the difference with COVID was that the recovery from that downturn was so much quicker than what we had with the housing market crash, that uh, we were able to weather that much better. And actually our, our projected losses for COVID didn't come near where we thought they would because of how quick the bounce back was. Uh, and that may be due to the fact that we're an industry town and we were uh, 
one of the industries that had to get going sooner rather than later, of course, to bring all that content that we talked about earlier. But we've been really fortunate in that regard, but uh, the housing market crash was a much more serious issue that really lasted for years and took several years for us to recover from. So Jennifer, one of the, the big questions, of course, in the strike is just the structure of the industry overall, the movement to streaming, uh, just the, the way that the that content is is made and delivered has changed so much as of late. In thinking about this, you know, presumably settling the strike and then what comes next, can you foresee any local fiscal impacts for sort of where the industry is going with its business model uh, relative to where it's been? That's a tough question. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm not an expert in, um, you know, that part of the industry. It, it does remind me and, and Liz, when we had our session during GFOA, we talked a lot about AI and, and about, you know, the future in public finance. And, you know, people seemed very to respond very positively to the prospect of AI doing some of our financial reporting. I don't think the industry feels the same way uh, in terms of uh, the creatives, right? And you really see that this strike is different than other strikes just because of that technology component and the fear of what it means for the future of the industry and how writers are valued and how actors' likenesses are treated. Those are the things that I think it make it different even more so than the change from traditional movies to streaming. I think it's that use of technology that really kind of has everybody's hackles raised and uh, their concern for what that means for the future of the industry. If you can get AI to write yourself a, a 35th Marvel movie, you know, what does that mean for the actors? And so it feels very much more like they're fighting for their creative future. And it's not just about salaries in this case, but given the rapid advance of technology, I couldn't tell you where the industry is going next. Can we ask you about uh, tax incentives? I know that's typically a state thing more than a local thing, but is that part at all of the constellation in thinking about competitiveness of the industry or competitiveness of Burbank relative to, you know, other potential uh, filming locations? You know, is that is is that something that that comes up as you're thinking about fiscal planning at the local level? Um, or is it not? You know, not as much as some, because like I mentioned earlier, we don't have a gross receipts business tax. So there's really nothing to rebate when we're not really charging a tax to begin with. Uh, so that makes it difficult. Uh, there are certainly um, some schools of thought around California. You know, you see a lot of folks competing for things like Amazon warehouses by rebating a portion of the sales tax. Um, in general, I don't always agree with that principle because you're you're taking something that is supposed to be for the public good and you're giving that to a, a corporation. So in, in terms of those sort of sales tax agreements, I know um, they cause a lot of strife around California that around California that you have communities competing with each other uh, for those industries. And that's something we want to try to avoid. I do think the state of California is, is trying to do what they can to keep the entertainment industry in California. There have been uh, lots of new productions happening all over, you know, Georgia and Canada. You hear about uh, the industry expanding. Some of that is just lack of room, right? LA is so compact, you don't have the room to build additional facilities for the most part. Um, and some of that is, yes, the economic uh, incentives that other places are are providing. We nearly lost, I believe it was two or 3,000 Disney jobs that they were talking about sending over to, to Florida, uh, which was big news here in Burbank. Fortunately, um, we can thank 
Governor DeSantis for kind of killing that move. And we're more than happy to uh, keep those folks uh, close to home here in Burbank. It's interesting how those uh, winds can shift in any moment, but uh, we're happy to retain those jobs here. But you just can't um, sit back and hope they stay without doing anything, right? You really have to be proactive in making sure that your largest employers are happy in town, but you don't want to go too far and do anything that could negatively impact your residents and, of course, the employees that support those employers. So it's a fine line you have to walk. Jennifer, you mentioned earlier um, on about how how many people who work for the city have been doing so for a long time. Um, we, we've talked a bit about on, on this podcast about staffing issues. And so that, that just made me think, I mean, is there a concern? Are you having staffing, staffing capacity issues, first of all? And then second of all, with all of those folks who've been with the city for a long time, I imagine at some point they're going to retire. Is how do you how are you kind of thinking about that? Yeah, we're definitely having staffing issues in the city, uh, just like everywhere else in California and the country. You know, one of the things that happened as a reaction to that housing market crash was uh, California enacted PREPRA, which is the you know a, a change to the public employees' uh, pension benefits. So there's this dividing line among our staff between the classics and the pepper employees, the benefits aren't the same. So the attractiveness uh, for recruiting is not the same. I mean, you have to be with the city for five years to vest in the pension plan to begin with. And I think we have a generation who doesn't even picture themselves in the same job for five years. So for sure, it's hard to recruit. Uh, Civil service jobs just don't have the appeal, I think, that they used to. And when it comes to public finance, I mean, GFOA has spoken about this a lot, right? There's many more jobs in public finance than we have students coming out of accounting school and in the finance fields. So we have our struggles here with finance internally. I I have about uh, 33 folks on my staff, and I think more than half of them will be eligible to retire in the next five years. And I can't honestly say that I have, uh, you know, a replacement designated for every single one of them. There's just more jobs that are going to be available than I have people to fill. So we're constantly recruiting. We're constantly trying to get creative about how we can do our succession planning and who we can identify within the department and then, you know, creative ways to recruit. But I think the field of public finance in a, as a whole is going to struggle uh, to fill positions over the next decade or two. And Burbank is certainly not immune from that. Does, does Burbank's cachet as kind of the, the center of the, the movie industry have any pull or is that like not that big of a deal in the L.A. basin? <laughs> I think where Burbank has an advantage is that we do see employees stay for a longer period of time. Uh, like I said, we have a lot of local born and raised folks that work for the city and we so value that experience and that uh, loyalty to the city uh, where we have a disadvantage is the same reason the industry has a disadvantage, right? We have a population that's double our residents during the workday, which means everybody's driving in from somewhere else. Uh, And it's not so easy to do A, because of the traffic and B, because, I mean, just trying to live in Burbank, a median single family home here is $1.2 million. While we feel like we have competitive wages, I mean, just being part of that LA metropolis uh, puts you at a disadvantage because people are either having to commute in from a distance or having to live in a home that's smaller than they could get if they went further out of town or, or out of LA. Like I said, this is a Los Angeles problem. This isn't just a Burbank problem, but uh, we're not going to be able to see as many people's 
kids stay in town uh, and work in town because that's just not affordable for somebody coming out of college. Uh, so we really do need to get creative about housing, not just in Burbank, around Southern California, um, and figure out a way to accommodate this huge daytime population that we just have a very competitive housing market because of the entertainment industry. So in a way, it actually puts us at a disadvantage. Sticking to that uh, theme of housing and affordability too, certainly we hear also on the spending side, uh, concerns about homelessness, spending side pressures that that creates for a lot of local governments uh, where you are. Is that are you feeling some of those same those same pressures in Burbank? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Burbank has the same homelessness problems that we see in other parts of LA. Uh, we're doing everything we can, and we have some creative programs to try to mitigate that. But there's no way around the fact that homelessness exists in Southern California and will continue to. Part of it is, I mean, obviously the weather allows for people to be outside year round. That's obviously not the only reason, but the lack of affordable housing. I mean, it's like this perfect storm that creates uh, the issue and it's very difficult to deal with. You know, on one hand, we want to provide services. On the other hand, we have residents who, you know, frankly, don't like folks, you know, sleeping on the streets next to their very expensive homes. So it really creates this uh, conundrum of, of how to deal with it in a compassionate way. You know, another thing is, you know, we're a very well built out city too. There's no new land in town with which to build housing. So, you know, anything we build has to be infill or, or redevelopment. Uh, our city is only 17 square miles. You know, we have to do our fair share to accommodate uh, affordable housing and uh, to help with our homelessness issue. But it's not like we have additional land where we could just go build more. It's very compact here. Uh, so you can't build out, you have to build up. And, you know, that changes the tone of a neighborhood. In some places, that's the appropriate thing to do, especially when you're near public transit or near downtown where you have a walkable area. But it's still a change. And, you know, we struggle with that in terms of our, our zoning and our future planning for the city. A question that I always like to ask California city finance directors, if you could change something about Proposition 13, what would you change and why? That's a fantastic question. That could be a whole separate podcast. Maybe you should do a Prop 13 podcast. I mean, several things, right? Just the way it's structured, uh, the disparity of how property taxes are, are distributed throughout your city. You could have two homes next door to each other at equal value, and one person is paying $700 a year in property taxes, and another person is paying 15000 it really is to the detriment of young families and people just starting out that are, are trying to buy a home. And what that does is it discourages people from leaving their homes also because you have this, uh, you know, ridiculously low property tax rate that you've been paying for years and years and years. Uh, so you think about the disparity in, in just the fairness of the tax. Uh, and also, you know, the fact that you're locked in at this lower rate, it really discourages people from moving. So, for example, maybe you're an older couple and your kids have flown the nest and you don't need a four or five bedroom house anymore and you want to move to someplace smaller. Well, you can sell your four bedroom home, maybe move into a two bedroom condo and you end up paying more in property taxes. So why would anybody leave that home? But there are, you know, growing families, of course, who need a, a home that size. And what that does is, of course, inflate the property values. 
uh, create this sort of have and have not system in California of, well, if you got here first, you're paying a lower tax and those folks coming in have to shoulder the bigger burden of the tax. And of course, the fact that uh, cities and counties in the state are collecting less taxes overall just uh, means there's less available for the school system. And, you know, you, I'm sure you could do a whole separate show on the disparity of uh, the school systems in California based on where you live. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's a difficult uh, problem to tackle, but really it all goes back to, to Prop 13. Uh, so I, I'm sure the folks, when they passed that, meant well or thought they were sort of protecting the taxpayer, but really what they were doing is protecting that generation of taxpayer and putting the burden on future taxpayers. So I don't, I don't really think it had the impact even the creators of Prop 13 intended for it to have. Well, thank you so much to Jennifer Becker. Director of Financial Services for the City of Burbank, California. We really appreciate uh, you giving us some time here on the Public Money Pod. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope you both come uh, visit us in beautiful downtown Burbank. Thanks again to Jennifer Becker, and good luck to the City of Burbank in managing managing the rest of hopefully what will be a shorter now strike with uh, the writers and and actors. I wanted to pull from some of the industry, from an industry publication for this week's Ripped from the Headlines. This is from the the Hollywood Reporter that goes into a little bit more detail about some of that economic impact uh, that, that Jennifer mentioned. This story is written by Gary Baum, and it's titled, As Writers Strike Eats into Profits, LA Restaurateurs Confront Actor Walkout as Well. The story notes that with the addition of actors to the strike, uh, that that membership, that union membership is more than 15 times the size of the, the writer's union. That, that's a number that's, that kind of gives you some context for how much more economic impact and activity that we're, we're dealing with now. The story also says that, so it interviewed a number of restaurateurs in the, in the area that anecdotally they're seeing anywhere between 15 and 20% declines in business, particularly during lunch service and in takeout orders. One restaurateur notes that at first, at the beginning of the strike, there was a buzz, a party-like atmosphere, but now he says that's that's definitely worn off. Uh, we're all feeling it. We're all concerned. There's a lot of people who are sweeping floors, waiting tables, and parking cars in this area who are really affected by this. There, there's another restaurateur who owns a sandwich shop said that they had been doing catering orders for 400 to 600 people every two weeks for Netflix through their restaurant partnership program, now the order is 200 to 250 people every four weeks. So way less consistent, way less volume. Um, those are just some snippets of the kind of impact we're talking about. But when you, as Jennifer mentioned, dry cleaners, you know, all, all these related industries that are affected by this complete halt of, of the major economic activity to the area. Um, there's another uh, article from the Hollywood Reporter that mentions the the mayor of Burbank, who's also an actor. Um, so he is on the picket lines, but he is at the same time trying to give voice to the the economic impact of the town. Mentions dry cleaners, gas stations, all of these all of these kind of places in the city that normally see foot traffic and business are just are are getting nothing right now, and it's it's a concern. You know, just curious, Justin, I'd like to hear some of your your thoughts about about these numbers and 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 what kind of things that what what that makes you think of yeah 
Yeah, I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it. First and foremost, it's not every day that we get to to take something from the trades, as they say in the business. So to, to be able to take a couple of pieces from the trades is always exciting. I, one of the things that, that really struck me that Jennifer talked about was how, in many ways, the revenue structure for Burbank is really not that different from a lot of other local governments, certainly in California or, or really anywhere for that matter. So you mentioned a couple of specific types of uh, excise taxes and a couple of specific types of of uh, revenues that they have, but the, the, their, their core is still property sales, a lot of the kinds of taxes that you see in local governments. And in that sense, they're just like any other industry town. And so it's interesting to see a piece like this really get into that kind of on the ground detail about how this is a, a strike like any other. You know, this, this is an economic impact, the same as it would be if you had striking steel workers or striking electricians or whatever it might be. Uh, but at the scale that it's being described here, it, it gives you a, a real clear sense of uh, kind of urgency surrounding this because you really are, it's not quite at the same scale. It's not exactly a fair comparison, but these are almost like sort of COVID type numbers, right? COVID, a COVID type slowdown of, uh, of economic activity. Uh, so it really does give you, know, give you a peek inside the, the economics of the negotiation and doesn't say maybe as much about what might come out of the, what's ultimately bargained out of this strike, but really does remind us that even though these are uh, industry towns in, in a glitz and glamour, high tech, digital media, CGI kind of world, uh, on the ground, it's sandwich shops and dry cleaners and sales taxes and property taxes and uh, not that different from, from uh, just about any other city in the United States that way. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Pod.